Let us pray and ask for the Lord's blessing, the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, please grant us by your mercy to have ears to hear and to understand your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who reigns with you and the Holy Spirit forever and ever. Amen. So once again, let us hear our text. It's from Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up upon a mountain, and when he was seated, uh, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are all those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, there's a great deal of misunderstanding about what Jesus is doing with the Sermon on the Mount. And in large part, it's because people hear things and then we begin to apply our own experiences to them or what, what it is we think we heard. I was reminded of this um, idea about just hearing things and, and misunderstanding what is being said just this week. Um, this past Sunday, uh, one of my children made a malt shop pie, one of my daughters, and she brought it to the house. And, you know, everybody in our family over the years, they've enjoyed this malt shop pie. It's, you, you, you crush up uh, whoppers in it, and you make this wonderful dessert, and it tastes great. And it was interesting, so my daughter took a picture of the pie and shared it with all of my kids across the country, and she typed it out, malt shop pie. And a number of my kids responded with, what? My whole life, I thought it was malt chop pie, because they knew that they had chopped up those, those uh, malt balls, right? But, but it's interesting when we hear things, how sometimes we, we insert what it is we think we hear, or we read into certain things and place our own intents in it, okay? We, we even sometimes, this can happen in our church, I, I read about a six-year-old who was overheard reciting the Lord's Prayer at the church service. And it came out, and forgive us our trash passes as we forgive those who pass trash against us. Sometimes we hear things, and we just make associations that aren't really there. And I want us to bear that in mind as we consider... um, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we'll be going over portions of the Sermon over the Mount for several weeks here, but I want us to understand that when Jesus comes out and he makes comparisons and he makes what appears to be changes, that's not what he's doing. He's bringing clarification to it. You know, today there's a great deal of people amongst 
our, our younger generation, the Generation Z, that's 1997 to, to 2012 in terms of when they were born, and they are really confused about the truth. A Barna Research, um, a research institute, they, they did a survey, and they found that most young people believe that Jesus was human and that he sinned. They believe that Jesus was not raised from the dead. They believe that Jesus is not active in the world today. And we understand that only about 13% of that generation are biblically engaged. And we see that from a study by the American Bible Society. If we're going to rightly understand God's word, we have to look at the whole. We have to understand the whole. And if there are what appears to be contradictions, we need to study that carefully. If we remain in ignorance, if we don't read God's word, if we don't have family worship where we're talking about it, we're going to have misunderstandings. One of the things that we've asked you to consider doing at home is we send out what the lectionary readings are going to be for the week. And we'd ask that, hey, in your household at some time during the week, would you read the, the, the gospel reading with your family? If you bring your kids to Sunday school, they're going to get that in Sunday school. And if they come here, the gospel reading from Advent to Pentecost is what we focus on. So imagine if you're reading it at home and talking about it with your kids, and they're getting it in Sunday school, and then when we all come together to hear God's word, we get it. Our literacy grows. If you have time, I'd even encourage you to, to read the supporting text that, are, that we put out as well, the other part of our lectionary readings, because they're all tied together, and that, again, helps add context. But as human beings, we have limitations in our understanding. Sometimes, like the humorous misunderstandings of children, it is simply out of innocence. However, as adult and young people, one of the primary reasons for errors and heresies in our beliefs and therefore our actions is simple ignorance of God's word. Far more grievous for all of us is outright rebellion to God's word. We decide sometimes that we don't like what God's word has to say to us. And in turn, we modify it to conform to what we are comfortable with. We change things in what we think are subtle ways that appeal to our sensibilities. We have forgotten what it says in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, where it says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Yahweh, search the heart, test the mind even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. God knows us. He knows our heart. However, our own heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. So if we try to organize God's word to what, what we're comfortable with, to our own sensibilities, to what we feel good about, we're going to be misled. We see later on in that same passage in Jeremiah that if we come to God in a state of repentance that we find the assurance of healing and salvation that is found in our God. If you look at Jeremiah 17, verse 14, it says this, Heal me, O Yahweh, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. 
This means that we can, when we come to God in repentance, live in a state of congratulatory comfort and assurance in Christ Jesus. By that I mean that we can live knowing, we we can congratulate one another, not in our good works, but in the faithfulness of God. We can look and say that in God our eternal state is secure, our salvation is secure in Christ Jesus, And so we can look and say, it's not of my works, but it is of the inheritance that God has given me through the work of Jesus Christ, that salvation and forgiveness of sins come to me. And it's not in my work, but in his. So as we turn and we consider the fact that we're studying the Sermon of the Mount, it's important that we consider the mountains and the fact that Jesus sits enthroned upon it. If we look in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, it says this, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and taught them, and he goes on and he begins to teach. But there's important things here. In this introduction of the Sermon on the Mount, we see that Jesus is on a mountain, and he sits. In Matthew, we can see that Jesus' life is from one mountain to another. There are seven mountains that we see throughout the book of Matthew. We see the temptation and victory of Jesus against Satan in chapter 4. In today's text, in chapter 5, he begins uh, teaching and preaching the Sermon on the Mount. We see that Jesus prays on a mountain in chapter 14. And in chapter 15, Jesus heals on a mountain. Jesus' glory is demonstrated on the mountain of transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. And Jesus gives the Olivet Discourse on a mountain in chapter 24. And finally, at the end of Matthew, Jesus gives the Great Commission on a, ma- on a mountain in chapter 28. Mountains are where heaven and earth meet. This is well understood, and of course, why the, people of ba- the, the Tower of Babel is built. What are the people in Babel trying to do? They're trying to assemble their own mountain, right? They want to be like God. They want to be at that pinnacle point that connects heaven and earth. We want to be like God, it says. And so God comes down and says, I need to put a stop to this. And he brings confusion and sends them out. We also see in Isaiah chapter 14 that the king of Babylon also desires to be set on the mountain. Isaiah 14, 13 says this, For you have said in your heart, this is referring to the king of Babylon, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. That's the place of worship. On the far sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. That's pretty scary when you think about someone declaring that. Am I right? But when we take God's word... And we assemble it so that it it brings us comfort and it makes us feel good. We are, in fact, doing the same thing. We are desiring to ascend to the place of authority, the place where, where we are speaking, and we become God. However, in this passage, Jesus comes with authority and sits on the mountain. He does this because his Father has placed him on the mountain. Remember Psalm chapter 2, verse 5? And this is God responding to those who are in rebellion to him. He says, Then he, that is God, shall speak to them in his wrath and 
distressed them in his deep displeasure. And he says this, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. God has placed Jesus in the place of authority as his son. Jesus is the true king and our only mediator to God. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified to in due time. Jesus sits down on this mountain, which, by the way, is the posture of teaching. It is how the listener knows that it is time to come and sit at the feet of the teacher and listen. If we remember that the ear is the organ of submission, we see both the posture of the disciples sitting at Jesus' feet and their submitting of themselves to the words of God by not interrupting and by being quiet. The word tells us that Jesus opened his mouth. It reminds us of when God was on a mountain and he spoke his ten words to his people. You see, sometimes people have taken the Sermon of the Mount and have said, this is where Jesus speaks a new and greater law. They arrive at this by taking note of the fact that Jesus makes a point to say, you have heard it said, and Jesus, by contrast, says, but I say to you, as if to contrast and change God's law. But Jesus, in this very sermon, says this in verse 17. Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus is pushing back against the oral laws that have been added to create a sense of personal righteousness. The law of God has been distorted, hijacked, and even misrepresented so as to provide comfort in the people of Israel's own good works because of the oral law and tradition. Jesus pushes back against this in verse 20 of chapter 5 where he says, after he points out some of these distortions, he says that I came to fulfill, and then he goes on and says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. The view in Israel is that it had become that if you met the law as set, set down by the scribes and Pharisees, <coughs> you would be called God's special and elite people. That you would be a holy people, a people set apart. Instead of being God's people to be priestly servants to the nations, they were being taught in this oral tradition that being the people of God was about being better than the other people. Like when we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus speaks directly against false ideas during his ministry. Jesus calls for repentance regarding the blasphemous and emptying, empty way of carrying God's name. These are all, all these efforts, all these extra things that are added, these are all empty efforts of their own good works. And they are believing the lie that this is keeping them set apart as God's people. It is salvation by works. Man's effort to build his own mountain is always before us. Everyone in his heart, outside of Christ, desires to be the king of his own mountain. We see then here as we get into the text of this passage, what is he saying? 
that, that the word blessed shows up nine times in this introductory portion of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount begins with a set of poetic statements that the church is called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes begin each line with the word blessed. Nine times the word blessed is used. God always uses repetition to emphasize his truths to us. So if we see a passage and the same word keeps showing up, God is saying, pay attention. You need to understand this concept. The first eight uses are simply statements of blessed as a particular kind of person and what they shall receive as a particular gift. Like this kind of person gets this. The ninth use of blessed in the Beatitude focuses on the blessed estate that we as Christians are in when we are persecuted because of Christ. When we consider what the word blessed is, we often insert a modern view. We think it's simply, oh, this person has received gifts from God, so, so we're blessed. And there is truth to that. But in the application of the Beatitudes, we, we get this focus where we, we reflect, okay, a person is this kind of person, so they're gonna, God's going to bestow this kind of gifts. But we need to understand what this word blessed means. In the Greek, makareos, which means to be happy. This is what this word blessed means. Now, in today's world, if I were to say to you, okay, happy is the person, and I give a thing, the first question is, what is happy? Am I right? In today's world, we've treated happiness as some sort of pursuit of temporary, oh, I'm, I've got a little bit of contentment and maybe excitement, maybe pleasure, so now I'm happy. Right? Now I'm happy. Well, the problem with that is, is that's a consumer product. Right? If I go and I buy a Coke... Right? And I drink that Coke, and I like Coke. I drink that up. Right? These days it's a little small 8-ounce can. Right? But, but still, I like drinking that Coke. The problem is, what happens when I get kids, when I get down to the end of that little Coke? Well, my taste buds cease to be excited. Right? What, what do I have to do? i got to go to the store and buy another one. It's only temporary. That, in fact, is not what this type of blessedness is. It's not about being prosperous and worldly affairs and enjoying some sort of spiritual happiness, right? In other words, getting all this great feeling like a party. But we do see that the common use of the word blessed in Greek culture was actually used to congratulate a person who was judged in some way to share in the privileged estate of their God. So you could actually even almost read into this that you could say, congratulate the person. Bring congratulations to the person in these things. We'll get into that a little more in just a moment. In the Old Testament... It congratulates those who are in God. Psalm 144.15 says, Happy, this is the same word, blessed, are the people who are in such a state. Happy are the people whose God is Yahweh. 
we also see that those who fear God are blessed, are happy, and should be given congratulations. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, Psalm 112, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on the earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. In the New Testament, it helps us to see the optimistic, congratulatory nature of our future in Christ and his kingdom. We can see in Luke chapter 14, verse 15, Now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. It also says in Revelation 19, Then he said to me, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, in Christ Jesus, we have been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Is that a reason to to congratulate one another? It isn't because we did it. It is because of the work of Jesus Christ. But we should rejoice. There is a, a future understanding of what it means to be blessed. Because obviously when we go through these just briefly in just a moment, we're going to see some of this stuff is talking about difficult circumstances, hardships, persecutions, right? And you say, wait a minute, i got to construct something here. How am I happy? How am I blessed in these things? It's because we know that we have been given the favor of God. And there's a way to approach this. The blessedness that Jesus speaks of here is a little more clear in the context that our happiness is brought into focus by the fact that we as Christians have a level of congratulations that are in order because our our future is sure in Christ Jesus. God, by his providence, has placed us in our circumstances, and we have both internal and external actions that come from this blessed estate. So what is Jesus saying in these Beatitudes? We look at Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word poor here does generally mean those who are destitute of material things. But it is important for us to recognize that, that God plays out the concept of being poor and destitute also to our condition as as people, as those who are humble and in need of redemption. Isaiah 61.1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. So we could, if we just read that, we could say, well, I'm preaching the good news to those that are financially destitute. But it goes on to say, He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Remember that the narrative of Scripture is, first of all, the people of God were in bondage. They were indebted. They couldn't relieve themselves and be set free, but God intervened on their behalf. He brought them out of bondage. He became their God. And therefore, we can understand this as both I, I want to be careful here because I don't want us to, to say okay we're going to over spiritualize everything and you don't do anything for the poor I think the, the scriptures are full 
of directions for us to care for the poor and needy. But the context here is to be reminded of the fact that we are, as human beings, sinful, and in that way we are completely and utterly undone and destitute and broke and have no way to redeem ourselves. We should note that God's blessedness is given to those who remain repentant, right? Those who are poor in spirit. You're not prideful in your own works. We are to be humble in our hearts, recognizing that we are destitute and cannot save ourselves from our sin. When God is generous to us, we are to be generous to those who are in need. We are to share the blessedness of salvation that is found in Christ Jesus. The focus here is about the blessed estate that we have in Christ for the kingdom of heaven has been given to us. We've been given the kingdom to make disciples of the nations. I want us to remember that the scriptures also instruct us not to neglect those who are physically poor and destitute. But Jesus is telling us here that those who know that they are destitute and unable to save themselves should in their humility be assured that the kingdom of heaven has been given to them through Christ Jesus. Continuing on in the text, we see in verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. These mourners are those who mourn over the satanic tyranny and sad estate of themselves and the world. Ezekiel chapter 9 verse 4 says this, And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put the mark on the foreheads of men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. Our place of mourning, of repentant, of our repentant heart, should be for our own sin, which is why we need to repent of our sin daily and come here together as God's people and, rep- and repent corporately. But we should also be mourning for the sins of the nations, for the people around us. Have you ever been grieved for someone who you know is standing in unrepentant sin? God says that you will be comforted. Mourn. To comfort all who mourn here should be a desire and a yearning to see God make things right. We see in Isaiah 61 verse 2 that we are to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. So there is both an acceptable day of the Lord, and at the same time, the vengeance of God, God's judgment is coming. Let us mourn for our sins and for the sins of the world. We need to understand that God will comfort. Revelation 21, verse 4, it says this, that God will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, no sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. We can trust in God, we can mourn in Him. He is faithful, and He does bring comfort. We see in, in verse 5 that blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This word meek, particularly today, is broadly misunderstood. The meekness of the scriptures is not about being timid and soft, but rather about power that is in submission like a horse one of those great big belgian horses you ever seen one of those up live and close you feel very small standing next to one of those horses and they are so powerful right and if left to themselves unbroken they can wreak havoc everywhere but when harnessed 
when their strength is harnessed and brought into submission, then they are able to be fruitful and do much work. We in the same way should be meek in this way, where we are submitting ourselves to God, where we are to be harnessed to the providences and the will of God and not our own desires. And God gives us the earth and the nations in this meekness. You can study Moses where it was said that he was meek. He was a meek man. And you will see, too, that he was not soft and without a backbone, but rather he was used of God. When, when all his strength and all his gifts were submitted to God, God used him in a mighty way. Verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. We are not to be seeking simply after being a better person by our own standards, or worse yet, the world's standards. But we should hunger and thirst for what God requires of us. That is to say, we want to see God's will accomplished in our lives and in the lives of the world. Our human nature seeks to have our own desires met. And happiness in all parts of our lives, outside of Christ, brings no satisfaction. If you want to have your life filled with satisfaction, to have your desires fulfilled, you will find that by seeking and being hungry for God's righteousness. We see in verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. God again calls us to be generous with what we have been given. We have been given mercy so we can bestow mercy to others. In this very service, just a few minutes ago, we asked God to forgive us as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Every week, here we do this. Let us also live daily, providing mercy to others out of the abundance of the mercies that God has given us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8 goes on and says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In In our culture, we view the heart as the place of emotions. And the condition of our heart determines our actions. Psalm 73 instructs us about our hearts. Beginning with verse 1, it says, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Sometimes we look out there and we start desiring what others have in the church and much worse in the world. And why did he almost stumble? Because he was envious of the boastful. Who are the boastful? Those who are boasting in what they have done, what they have accomplished, the mountain that they have assembled. Here we see that we are instead to not allow sin to enter our lives and let the covetous desires of those who are in rebellion to God drive us. We must instead trust God and in his mercy that is found in Christ Jesus. And in that, we are able to draw near to God. You know, at the very end of Psalm 73, or excuse me, 72, it says this, but it is good for me to draw near to God. It is good for me. Even though I almost stumbled, God kept me. And why did I stumble? Because I was desiring and coveting other things and what other people were doing. But it says this, It is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare 
his works. Verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Jesus became the peacemaker between God and us. Jesus demonstrates this very thing of being a peacemaker in his own life towards all of us and even those who aligned himself against the triune God. Jesus later tells us in this chapter what being a peacemaker is all about. In verse 43 of chapter 5, it says this, You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Think about that. Jesus himself did all of those things when he mediated peace on our behalf. We see that Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, in these first eight points, returns us to remind us that those who are persecuted for following God are given the kingdom of heaven. You see that in those first two. You were given the kingdom of heaven for being filled with humility and poor of spirit, trusting in God because we know we can't save ourselves. And he reminds us at the end where persecution is being is coming for following God we are given the kingdom of heaven this leads us to the final and blessed congratulatory state verse 11 it says blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake rejoice and be exceedingly glad rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We are certainly surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses and the faithful prophets of God. Just as God demonstrated his faithfulness to his faithful prophets of old, the reward by his deliverance from our poor and destitute and sinful estate, we too are also likened to the prophets that when we are persecuted for his sake, that the nations may be reconciled to him and come to his table of peace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you that you have given us your Son, who is in fact the Savior of the world. Help us to rejoice in him and realize the great blessings we have in him so that we may bring glory and honor to you. And we ask all of this through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.